You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, as usual, but not usual, is Paul Doroshenko. Hello. You, you've completely abandoned your catchphrase. I can't remember which catchphrase I had, but I did have strange <laughs> ways of saying hello each time, and it was because you sound so dynamic, and I wanted to try and up it, and again, I, you know, I don't know that I was doing a very good job of that, so I'm just trying to be myself. Okay, well, that will disappoint our listeners. Thanks a lot. Um, Speaking of disappointing things, the federal government gave some disappointing news. Now, you remember about a month ago, Jody Wilson-Raybould announced that they uh, had the intention of regulating the Drager Drug Test 5000, and we did our emergency podcast on it. Red Alert podcast, I remember that, yeah. And uh, there was a lot of... Seems like a long time ago, you know, August usually is a slow month for news, and it's usually a slow month for us, but we've had our busiest month. It's been our busiest July ever, our busiest August ever. Well, and also it's usually a slow month for trials. And I think we've had, well, I mean, we just got back from three separate trials in a row, back to back. Yep. Uh, It's amazing that we can get through that, you know, one day a trial, the very next day a different trial, the very next day a different trial and still come through and do well. And it's funny, you know, you, you get your sea legs after the first one. You got, uh, if you haven't had a trial in a few weeks. And you got a good haircut, and I got a bad haircut somehow in all of that time. I think your haircut's fine. Uh, yeah. um, anyway, the um, where was I going with this? So, a month has passed, despite the attention that this issue got when she indicated that she was going to approve it. All the negative attention where people cried out and said, don't do it. They went ahead and did it. Well, I don't think we expected them to change their mind. Um, I... You know, I knew they would follow through. This was what they decided on probably long before they uh, had their pilot test program that didn't include the Dragon Drug <laughs> Test 5000. If you don't, so, if you don't have the pilot test program, then uh, you can't identify any of its flaws, and it must be perfect. Well, they didn't want to have that one as part of the test program, probably because they didn't want parliamentarians to know that people were going to have to rub this thing around in their mouth for four minutes and then have wait 10 minutes for results and 10 minutes beforehand before the test and you know it's basically it's going to be 40 minutes 45 minutes each time for the test and if you know had that been part of the discussion I think people would have said look this is not going to be constitutionally valid but I think one of the interesting things about this is the fact that they approved it on the basis of essentially a recommendation by the Canadian Society of Forensic Sciences Drug Impaired Driving Committee but the CF, CSFS won't release the data that they created studying it. They'll requ- release their final report about the drug or drug test, but they won't release the data that was the basis of that report. But we'll get it. We'll get it. You watch. We're going <laughs> to... Well, of course we'll get it. Yeah, but it's just going to take us some time. And fighting. Yeah, no doubt. The um, Now, the next thing is, of course, look at their timeline here. Uh, somehow... You know, they, presumably they are going to sell hundreds at a minimum uh, and thousands really to be able to equip the police with them in the manner in which they expect to do it. 
and somehow Draeger's got to gear up and suddenly produce them for everybody in Canada, every police force that wants to buy them. Well, they've the manufacturers said we're looking at four to six weeks. What's what's the date now? August thirtieth, yeah. or August thirty first at the time of airing. Um, it, we're looking at less than that. I, I think that's impossible. It's I not going to happen. I don't see how they can manufacture them at that speed. I don't. I assume that they probably make them in Germany. Um, they have labor laws there, you know. And unless they're going to make these things in China, there's no way that they're going to be able to produce them at that. I'm pretty sure if you could get your hands on one, you could send it to one of those manufacturers from Alibaba and get them to produce one identical a lot quicker. Probably in four to six weeks with uh, violating a lot of patents held by Draeger. Well, patents are are for the birds. Well, they're not for the This isn't the patent law podcast, Paul. I know. Well, I... (laughs) Can you imagine? The, uh, the, the never, patents don't seem to ever stop Chinese manufacturers from producing things, but uh, the people in Draeger, Draeger probably would be very happy about it. But yes, the um, I don't know how they're going to produce them in that timeline. Uh, but even if they produce them in that timeline, how are they going to train the police officers in that timeline? Where is their training material? Have they developed it? I mean, I've been talking to, I've conducted so many traffic trials over the summer yeah and uh i can amazingly i managed to succeed in every damn traffic i did this summer but uh the uh it surprises even me um none of the police officers reported to me that they had any training that there was any discussion they all just told me it was a shit show so they said that there's nothing there they're not doing anything they haven't prepared they they never all of them had never heard about the device um there's been no discussion about training seminars, sessions, who's going to train if there's somebody in the detachment. So even if they manage to produce them in that period of time, which, you know, would be remarkable if they can and uh, and a uh, tribute to capitalism. Yes. Um, it, would, uh, it would also demonstrate um, probably pretty clearly as a anti-tribute uh, to um socialism in the sense that the police are a government-run organization there's no way the police are going to be prepared no to operate them no because the way that the police work like with any of the breath testing equipment we've seen whenever they get something new first they train the instructors well actually first they train the people at the lab who train the instructors who then train the officers and so you're going to have to have this three levels of training the lab people training the instructors on how to train the people how to use it and that's like months right there every once in a while it always surprises me i see a police report where there's a police officer does not conduct uh an approved screening device test because they're not uh certified to do them they haven't been trained to conduct an asd test on an fst um so I, i suppose they can train a very small handful but then how do you do it forthwith how do you you know have the guy there the the police officer who's available to conduct that test when you've pulled somebody over and come to the suspicion that they are um, impaired in their ability to do the suspicion that they've got a drug in their body rather yeah, phone um, someone figure out who's actually got a drug test 5000 that can drive it over and then operate it yeah i i cannot see the test being done in less than an hour and and, and that's great when you're on the on the way to the airport for you know your trip to disneyland and you get pulled over by the police and they decide because you're a little strange that your, they suspect your, that you've got your a eyes are red body. and you smell funny kind of chemically like sunscreen yeah well <laughs> you, you haven't slept in two days because you've been busy fucking packing to get ready and, and your kids are and so your excited kids are screaming and, and yeah. excited and you get there and you're a little bit 
wound up and you had too much coffee and then you get pulled over and you spend Caffeine's an hour. Caffeine's a drug, Paul. Yeah, I know it's a drug and it's interesting because it could be, uh, it's not detectable by the uh, drug test 5000, but um, it's open to be a drug that you could be impaired by. The criminal there code is not There are cases of that, that in the US that I've been yeah, following. Yeah. Oh, I took yeah, years ago, back when I used to buy MGBs in San Diego and drive them up to Edmonton and sell them there, I uh, stopped and bought some um, wake-up pills uh, in a 7-Eleven in Northern California to try and keep going. And I was, I was definitely impaired by that <laughs> because I, I could not think clearly. I mean, I, I drove for 10 hours through the night. Um, I had hallucinations and everything, but uh, I was definitely, you know, it affected my, my thought process. And looking back, I would say that I was impaired. Really? I got like a solid B plus on a paper I wrote the night that I had to phone, phone poison control because I took too many wake ups in university. What do they tell you? You phone poison control. They just tell you what to do. They don't. Yeah. Well, they would tell me whether I needed to go to the hospital, like if my heart was going to explode. I, we had a, um, it felt like it. I may have mentioned this. I told somebody about this recently. A, a few years back, uh, I had ordered a breath test simulator because I wanted a Smith and Wesson breath test simulator as part of our collection here. Kyla and I, uh, as I've said before, have the largest private collection of breath testing equipment anywhere, uh, in Canada. And, uh, we challenge anybody to uh, to show us theirs and uh, that it's that it's bigger, but there it, it isn't in any event. Um, so I got this thing and uh, I ended up spreading mercury all over the office here. It uh, mm-hmm. it uh, didn't vaporize, but it uh, got into such small um, little bits that it was throughout our carpet. We lost a chair and I lost a pair of pants and we it, lost a carpet. Yeah, it cost twenty seven thousand uh, dollars by the time I was done. Um, to deal with that. And why did I get on that? I what? have no idea. You were talking about caffeine. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> the poison control. Geez, I'm, I'm as distracted as Ian Tootill, um, as I, as I get to his age. Um, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the, we phoned poison control, um, not here. When I went to the hospital, because I had mercury poisoning, I could taste the mercury in oh, my yeah, mouth. Oh, yeah, the ER doctor for poison to, control. We got to the, you, uh, you took me? I can't yep. remember. Somebody, you yeah, took me no, to the hospital? I yeah. sat in the emergency room waiting room with you. I don't know why you came. The um, But I appreciate Because I've been out it. in Surrey all day at our Surrey office. Oh, yeah, because we had the emergency. Yeah, so we had to talk about stuff. We had the emergency, everybody working in the Surrey office. So, um, yeah, so I get to the hospital and uh, I met with a doctor and the doctor left and just phoned poison control. And uh, eventually they just put me on the line with poison control because I actually knew quite a bit about mercury poisoning because of a case that I dealt with years before. So it turns out it was just like me and the person from poison control having a chat about it. So that's what they do when you're poisoned is they just phone the poison control person. Yes. 24 hours online. Anyway, the other thing I keep thinking about the timing of all of this is they're approving it um, now. They're going to have them in the hands of police in four to six weeks, and we need another month from that for training. By then, we're in the dead of winter. They're not even going to be able to use it. Yeah. Kyla keeps saying on all these news broadcasts that it's like four to 40 degrees, but my recollection of the literature is it's five to 40 degrees. It's four. Well, we're going to pull the manual out after we're done this tonight, and we're going to look again to see what it is. The um, We've got the manuals. We've had the manual for a long time, the training manual, but we got the most updated one um, just last week. So we're going to look at it and see 
And when we get it, we're going to put it in the fridge. When we get the Drager Drug Test 5000, you mean? Sure. Yeah, because soon we're going to own the largest private collection of um, drug-impaired driving testing equipment. We actually, I had somebody give me some um, some strips at some event we were at. I can't remember. Yes. Yeah, do we still have those? Somewhere. Never used them. Yeah. Neither one of us were drugged up enough. <laughs> when we get the drug or drug After test 5,000, we're going to have to try a couple of things that are lawful. I still have some T3s left from when I fell uh, on um, January 1st. And I'm going to take a T3 and wait an hour and then test myself to see whether or not it comes up as positive on something. I don't think uh, codeine registers on it, but I have Oxycontin. I oh, you do from your... Uh, from yeah. my back injury. Yeah. Yeah. You still have some? Yeah. Keep it, in your desk. Keep it in yeah. your desk here? Keep it in my desk for those Good. really hard days. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what Good. I do. Okay, well, we'll try it then. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not trying You're it. You're not you can trying try it. it. I'll wait it. until my back is really, really bad one day. And then you can try it. The thing is, I don't really want to swab my mouth for four minutes. That's what it takes. You yeah. put this You put this thing on uh, this little mouthpiece on the end of this handle, and you swab it for four minutes. The interesting thing is the mouthpieces are supposed to never be frozen, never have been frozen. So, I mean, again, we the RCMP in Canada don't follow all the manufacturer's recommendations on things. For example, with the Alcosensor FST, which we use in BC to punish people, it's supposed to be tested for calibration every two weeks. That is the manufacturer's recommendations. And that is only when it's being used as a screener. And yep. in British Columbia, we test it every month for calibration, yet we use it for punishment. And currently in British Columbia as well with the Alcosensor FST, um, despite the manufacturer's recommendation of a five-minute waiting period after an object's removed from the mouth, and you've seen my video demonstrating mouth temperature instability yeah. and the effect on readings, in British Columbia, the government in their infinite wisdom decided to just remove that requirement. Which is shocking. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm dumbfounded by it, especially when we're using these things for punishment. Yeah. The old RCMP manual said uh, when the alert came out that there had to be a, uh, the alert was a earlier, it was called a roadside uh, alcohol screener. Um, later they changed it to an approved screening device. But uh, when the alert came out, they said that there had to be a clear 20 minutes from the last drink. Mm -hmm. And we've done tests, and you and I were both participants in a in a study mm -hmm. uh, where we were the ones who had to drink, and uh, we had uh, significant alcohol concentrations after 20 minutes from the you last and I time. demonstrated it. There's a video on oh, yeah, YouTube. Yeah, there's a video. That yeah, there's that video yeah. there too. I sat there and read that whole book. You yeah. sat there, read the book. You cleared your mouth alcohol in your time. Yeah. Yeah, and so, which makes me think that there's more that goes into the elimination of mouth alcohol. I wish that we were still doing more studies about that, but it seems like the scientific community when it comes to breath testing is focusing more on issues like partition ratio and GERD and other developing issues and forgetting about all of the things we don't know about the elimination of mouth alcohol. Why does it eliminate? What causes it, it to eliminate faster? Does it eliminate faster in some individuals based on factors like body weight or body temperature or um, saliva production or race or gender? Do those things play a role in it? Dehydration. I so many questions. If you're dehydrated, we know that if you're dehydrated, your blood alcohol concentration will be higher. Uh, we, you know, we discovered that inadvertently, but we know that and it's never been studied. Mm-hmm. 
um, and you, you, your actual blood alcohol concentration is higher. So, uh, you know, ultimately you're committing the offense, but just dehydration. Uh, consume a lot more fluid uh, if you're going to start drinking in addition to what you're drinking because uh, you don't want to be dehydrated and have alcohol in your body because you'll have a very high elevated BAC. You may not feel impaired, uh, but you'll have a fairly high elevated BAC. But yeah, it's not, it's not studied and it's not studied despite the fact that in British Columbia, we use these devices to punish people and they have no feature to detect the presence of mouth alcohol. And that was a big thing in 2010 when the IRP scheme came out. It was one of the things that everybody got hooked on, just like everybody's getting hooked on the temperature with the Drager Drug Test 5000 um, and the um, the failure rate of 12 to 15% that's been reported. Well, there. I don't know, like 85% accuracy for something that's so significant is kind of a pretty important hook. Well, I wrote that blog post that I just published yesterday about it because it's bothered me so much because the the... I mean, it's one thing to have the alcohol tester faulty and to be exonerated when you go back to the detachment and you provide a sample into an approved instrument. And we used to see this fairly regularly before the IRP scheme, that people would go back to the detachment, they'd blow a fail, which would indicate they were over 100 milligrams in 100 milliliters. They'd get back to the detachment and blow something that, like 50 milligrams. Yeah. And the police would always say, oh, it was, uh, you know, it was... Uh, uh, he eliminated that alcohol, but you'd look at it and it wasn't a realistic elimination rate. You know, it was basically people had some mouth alcohol and then they were exonerated at the detachment. Now here we've got a, a new device, the Drager Drug Test 5000, and we are going to see circumstances where innocent people are dragged back to the detachment. It's a long process. They're going to be, sometimes they'll end up charged with refusal for not participating in the rest of the process. Other times they'll go through the rest of the process. It will take two hours. They'll be compelled to give urine or blood. And then we'll wait six months while the lab tests that urine or blood. Meanwhile, those people will be charged. They'll have a court date. Um, you know, they will have this hanging over their head, an allegation of being impaired by drugs. And, and if there's never, 15% innocent. And never mind the fact that if your urine or blood comes back with the presence, just the presence, regardless of the concentration of the drug that the DRE thought that you were impaired by. So, no, oh, I think that you're impaired by a CNS depressant, Paul. In fact, I know you are because I can see you drinking one right now. Yeah. Um, but if he thinks that and then your urine comes back and you've got Ritalin in your urine, which is also a CNS depressant, boom. You're done. That's presumptive. And the worst part about that is the, the DRE is going to say that because you're probably going to tell them at one point. You may well, not be impaired at all. They you may not be impaired at all. You might admit to, you know, I'm, I take I, Ritalin because I have ADHD. Yeah, exactly. Or I take cannabis because I have glaucoma. Yeah. Or I, I know, but you may, I not, take you may PCP not be impaired at all. I just because like he comes cars. back and he heard you at the beginning, you know, mention it. And uh, this is part of the process in the DRE in the States that we're not going to be doing because we don't do it correctly, although there's really no correctly to do a lousy test in the first place. But um, have you had Lance Platt on yet? You really should have Lance on. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Um, the. Um, the uh, it, it is a, a faulty process, but the the problem that with that is that most of the time the prediction is coming in as a result of an admission, and then all they have to do is fail you on the test, and you've had the admission, 
and then you're going down. But I want to get back to no, the point no, of no, it. No, no, I want to I say something else that has been irking me for a while about the DRE. And I do want to do a longer episode where we really break down the DRE the same way I'm doing on my blog. Um, By the way, everybody, Kyla's doing a great job on her blog every week, breaking down the DRE in advance of legalization of cannabis. Go to it. Uh, Dana Larson was tweeting about how brilliant Kyla is doing this. <laughs> it's great. It's smart. It, really and it really explains it well. Go to it. Kyla, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I hope you didn't lose your train of thought. No, it's that the DRE officer doesn't even need to pick one. So there's the seven categories of drugs. And at the very end, they can say, I think that you're impaired by a CNS depressant and a stimulant, even though those two things are the opposite. Like the things that a stimulant would cause you to exhibit are the opposite of what a CNS depressant would cause you to exhibit. And the effects on the body are the opposite. And that's problematic to me for two reasons. First of all, it's like the cover your ass, no matter what comes up in the blood result, you're gonna, you're gonna be right and that person's gonna be convicted. But secondly, it's problematic because it, it, it like allows the officers to just call anything impairment. And you could actually use various drugs, and you see this with, with um, like meth addicts and heroin addicts. You can use these various drugs in conjunction with one another to mitigate the impairing effects. I mean, like people will go back and forth from meth to heroin because the coming off either of them sucks, but if you use the other one, it's okay. I mean, that's not a really good example. That was not a great example. Because in those circumstances, you'd be impaired. I kind of would prefer that they probably are not driving. But you could also, you know, mitigate some of the impairing effects of a CNS depressant. Like, you know, if you were drunk, you could probably eliminate that whole delayed reaction time by taking cocaine. I'm not saying you should. A lot of people do. But you could. Yeah, a lot of people do. And if you um, did it, if you were careful about your dosages, you m- may not be impaired. I gave an interview this morning to uh, to a journalist, and we'll see. It was this is the same day that the uh, that the federal court of appeal ruled on the on the pipeline uh, application. So I think probably that interview got bumped, but it was a long interview, and we'll see how it comes out. But um, one of the things I've been trying to explain to people is one of the issues with cannabis is you may be impaired, but you're impaired in your thinking and. Typically, there's no physical indicia. With alcohol, if you drink enough, your muscles, you can no longer control your muscles. And it's its actually in your muscles. And that's one of the reasons it displays in the eyes. And we're going to have a real problem because we're not going to be able to say that people are impaired if we don't have a baseline of what their cognitive state is when they're not on whatever drug that they're on. And, you know, they're going to arrest people and they're going to go through this steps and we're going to tear apart the DRE. The DRE has been kicked out of court in half of the United States, 25 states have uh, have said that it's not reliable enough for them to found convictions on. Um, and we don't even do that full test. So I think, you know, judges are not as cynical as I would like them to be a lot of the time. Sometimes I'm looking at the judge and I'm looking at their face and wondering why they're not as cynical as me. Just thinking, um, maybe I need to be on the bench. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the, uh, not with that haircut. The, um, it's a good haircut. I don't like it. Um, the... Uh, I think it looks great. The um, I just hope that uh, that they are prepared to be a little bit cynical when uh, when they've got this hocus pocus of DRE facing them in court. Yes. So on that note of cynicism, this has nothing to do with cynicism, but I wanted a smooth transition, so I said that. Motorcycles. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think there's a cynicism thing there. I'm just concerned hearing these uh, about all of these deaths on motorcycles. I've got friends and uh, family members who ride motorcycles, and I've I've actually witnessed a couple of horrible motorcycle accidents. Really? I witnessed, I witnessed a death, actually. I oh, witnessed a good guy, Lord. Uh, yeah, it was on the uh, White Mud Freeway in Edmonton, and he rear-ended an uh, uh, old international pickup truck in the right-hand lane uh, just um, west of the, uh, of the, actually, the White Mud um, White Mud Ravine. And uh, it happened right in front of me, and the guy was, was dismembered, like he was, that was the end of him. Um, it was a long time ago. It was 30 years ago, 33 years ago, but it was uh, Did it, still like, stuck totally in my mind. Did it, like, totally fuck you up? Yeah, and I also, in Cairo, I watched a, uh, a guy in a motorcycle accident where his leg was broken and, like, the bone was sticking out. Um, I, wa- I was I early read in the a, morning on the way to the airport in a taxi. I read a story about a guy who was in a motorcycle accident, and there's pictures, um, whose leg got dismantled and he had it amputated in the end and kept it and ate it and served it to his friends that's disgusting i know right he Uh, made pictures it was so gross i used to ride a motorcycle regularly i used to love riding a motorcycle when i was a teenager yeah yeah and it was yeah i think it is crazy i look at it now and i i i really like the idea of having a whole car around me i know you can persuade yourself that you're much safer than you are in a car and in a motorcycle, you can, uh, you know, you you probably or you should be alert to the threat that you don't have a vehicle all around you. Uh, but you know, most of the motorcycle accidents I've I witnessed or seen um, are mistakes made by the person on the bike. I, I know the concern usually is the other vehicles, the cars, but. We have an alarming number of deaths this year. Yeah, it's like a uh, huge in BC spike. and Alberta. Yeah, yeah. from motorcycles. And what, I, and I, I wanted to talk to you about what you think the cause is, because that's the big question. Why are so many people all of a sudden dying on motorcycles? Well, they they didn't say that in the news story, but I think that one of the issues is that there's just a lot more people on motorcycles. Why? People like motorcycles. Suddenly cool. People like motorcycles. Think about Grant. Okay, uh, the retired Corporal Grant Gottkatru, um, who you've had on your podcast here, he's mm-hmm. got his uh, motorcycles. He likes to ride his motorcycles. It's a, it's a, something that he gets a lot of enjoyment out of. And then there's Jason Koshman, who's in our office, who smart, nice lawyer, deals with uh, mostly employment issues and some other heavy litigation. But uh, you know, he spends a lot of his summer either on his riding his road bike, you know, his his pedaling sport bike or he's on his motorcycle and so there's a lot of people people on their motorcycle people liking motorcycles isn't a new thing no i think there's more i just i get the sense that there's more people on their bikes maybe they're being more sons of anarchy so i don't understand i don't know what that is it was a tv show about motorcycles but like why the sudden interest then in motorcycles is it is it connected to our you know, weird, strange existence in the world right now and the feeling of futility and hopelessness that is over-encompassing all of us. I noticed as I was on the ferry the other day, I don't know, it was uh, one of these trials on the island. I was there. Um, Were you? Yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, and there was, we parked beside all those motorcycles. Um, And uh, the people who, a lot of the people who have motorcycles are really... um, they admire the technology, the machining, the, the sort of the quality of it. It's all there exposed. I mean, you can open the hood of your car uh, of a new Kia and you could get excited about the, the technology and engineering, but people don't. 
Uh, but I open the hood of my car and there's plastic coverings on all the dirty parts. So yeah, well, you just look at the little hinges <laughs> for the hood and you can see that it was, you know, well thought out by some engineer and uh, uh, Jaguar working in India. Um, but uh, the uh, I think that's part of the issue. I think is that people really admire the machine. I think people really like the idea of an engine. Um, the, I think it's uh, the feeling of flying down the road. There's a sense of freedom. Um, the, um, you know, it's a, it's a neat thing just to have that, just you and a, an engine and some wheels and very little, uh, you know, between you and the road and, and barreling along and it feels like you're moving fast. And, and the other thing is it always feels like you've got slight, a slight advantage on all the cars on the road because you, you can move quicker, you can move quicker between lanes. That's probably the, you know, some of the biggest dangers, but I think that's one of the reasons. I think it is an expanding thing. I think there's more people on motorcycles now than before. I think it was more stigmatized and more of a biker thing um, in the past. Yeah, and but now bikers moved... are cool. Thanks, Trump. Yeah, well, that no, they're not cool. That Trump did not make them cool. Trump does not make anybody cool. Well, there's lots of people who voted for Trump and lots of people who support Trump that would disagree with you. Yeah, but I don't think it made makes those people cool no. i don't think that's a the expanding market I mean, the, of the people, people i know are not trump supporters the expanding market of motorcycles is not trump supporters uh, the the issue that was brought up when this was discussed in the media was the uh training of motorcyclists and apparently the greatest number of deaths are in the people who've been riding for a couple of years yeah, most the of the time 200 like, hours yeah well that guy who smashed into the back of that international pickup truck was probably going 160 kilometers an hour in the white mud, That's which stupid. is pretty typical, I think, for a lot of the motorcycle accidents. Um, well, I was going fairly slowly when I had a motorcycle accident when I was uh, probably 15, and uh, it it scared the hell out of me. Um, the uh, yeah, I, I I think there you know the issue of training is certainly there. The guys with really loud mufflers on their motorcycles, and this is something we wanted to talk about too, was uh, the guys with really loud mufflers always claim that, well, it's good to be heard. The problem is they're usually coming up behind you. Yeah. You're not going to hear them as you change lanes. Well, and, and also they can't hear you. So this time, Kyla, it's the first time, this is a segue, that I wanted to uh, segue into something on the show that we... Uh, we try and have our topics sort of sorted out beforehand, but the Alberta government is now looking at taking their red light cameras and having them monitor the sound of vehicles and <laughs> taking photographs and recording noisy vehicles. And this is a significant complaint that a lot of people in Alberta have. I have this complaint here too, but um, we don't see a lot of enforcement for noise I can tell you why motorcycles. that is. Well, I know why that is, too. I don't know that we want to discuss that today. We can discuss that on another day. But what do you think about having noise? You know, here, uh, Alberta's already governing people by robots, okay? They've got photo radar everywhere, intersections everywhere. In Edmonton, I get a photo radar ticket every damn time I go there somehow. Um, they've, got, uh, they've got photo red light, and now they're looking at photo recording uh, noise. So are they going to, I have a couple questions. One, are they recording an audio clip so that the level of noise can be independently assessed? Are they providing a decibel reading? And then what information are they using to calibrate their decibel meter? And, and how is it directionally designed? 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the answers to any of those things. Okay. Um, I don't know how far they are in the process. They seem to think that it's something they can do. I, um, I just but, don't and see. And this is back to remember, this is all photo radar under the photo radar scheme. So it doesn't show up on your driving record or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, it's. Unlike in British Columbia, where if you get a ticket for excessive noise, it's three points on your driving record. And points, I, this frustrates me, because points are only supposed to be connected to moving offenses and indicate a safety risk, but they're not. Well, I think it's to try and dissuade people. The complaint in Alberta is that uh, mostly motorcyclists, but other people get pulled over. The police give them a ticket. The ticket includes that you've got to get the vehicle fixed. They modify the muffler they bring it in they show it to the police officer they rev it up a little bit the officer says oh okay all right well that's fixed and then they go home and they swap the old muffler back yeah and i i don't know if we talked about this there used to be a long tunnel in edmonton called the rat hole and there's no rats in <laughs> is alberta. that where they sent the rats out no rats in alberta but there's the rat rats hole, in alberta there's no rats in alberta the rat hole um ran uh, under the cn yards which is now grant McEwen community college uh, and it was, uh, there used it's to be... It's now Grant U- McEwen University. Grant McEwen University, sorry. Uh, and there was a hardware store there, um, that uh, a lumber yard that was just amazing. I remember when it closed down. But the rat hole was one lane either direction underneath there. And um, Stony Plain Road ran over it. And it so we had two different things that we could do exciting with the rat hole. Stony Plain Road ran over it and there was a huge bump in the road. And my father used to go over that just a little bit too fast to the point where often we'd be up sparks and scraping out the back. That was a fairly common thing. Um, and I did that too when I started driving. The other thing was driving through the rat hole. I had a Triumph Spitfire with a straight pipe on it, um, like a almost yeah. no muffler. And I used to get in there and I'd go very slowly at the beginning. I'd be holding up traffic. I'd get down into second gear and then I would stomp on it through the rat hole with the top down. It was so much fun. It was so noisy. It was probably irritating as hell to everybody else. But to me, I was just having a great time in the rat hole. But in any event, you're a horrible person. I'm a horrible person, but the Alberta government wants to shut me down. I don't do it anymore. Look, I'm a, I'm a white male who likes cars and I guess feels entitled to. Okay. Felt entitled well, when I was 17. I was 17. Okay, I, I started I'll driving say, when I was 16. I'll say this. This sounds like, I mean, without knowing further detail about why it's a problem and where are they going to put these these things are they putting them in quiet residential neighborhoods where there's been complaints about vehicle noise late at night that wakes up families or is this like being put in places like the rat hole where people do it to stunt or is it being put just random places kind of like they do with the photo radar um so that they can generate more revenue for the province and does alberta really need more revenue for the province i lived in an apartment on white avenue 99th street and uh guys on their motorcycles would go barreling either direction there um and rev the hell out of them in summertime and it's hot and you know you're living in an apartment you got no air conditioning or anything like that um and uh you've got the windows open at nighttime and it wakes you up every time and it's irritating as hell i am sympathetic for the complaint, how they're going to do this and the type of enforcement, uh, I have, you know, it'll be interesting to see. But um, I think they're going to have I, to I think. Hate, I hate robot enforcement. They're going to have to think very carefully about where they put this and the evidence that it generates because people are going to have a right to challenge it in court. People are going to have a right to disclosure. And if there's no reasonable way to test that evidence, I think that they would run the risk of losing any type of photos slash video slash audio 
automated enforcement of vehicle noise provisions uh, laws that they create. Yeah, maybe. That was a complicated sentence. No, I get you, though. Well, they may they may lose it. Let's so, see how it goes. So are we doomed, then, in British Columbia to them following this model? I'm concerned when we're talking all about this photo radar. We, You and I have talked to a bunch of people about these new versions of photo radar that the provincial government's talking about. And, and you know, the, the, there's various different concerns that people have. I think it's a fait accompli. It's coming. Uh, once it comes, people are going to going to dislike it because I think they don't like being governed by robots. I'm not, again, I find it very, I find it very problematic. I know for you and for your generation, you guys are throwing your hands up and saying, I don't want to be governed by robots for me and people of my generation. And I will admit to being a millennial. We don't care about being governed by robots. By and large, we're kind of cool with it. Yeah, I think it's terrible. I'm just waiting for drones flying around and if they can deliver my us. Amazon packages same day, I'm cool with it. Uh, well, I'm hoping that I'm I'm, you know, I live a long life and yet don't see that. Um I don't want it. I'm a human on the Didn't planet. Did you grow up watching the Jetsons? I grew up reading a lot of dystopian novels. And, <laughs> and, and so, so did I, I but and so I live in fear of uh of a leader like Trump. Uh, and I live in fear of uh, people persuading themselves that, oh, a little bit more open racism is okay. And I live in fear of being governed by robots. I, I will say about open racism is that it's helpful in knowing who the racists are. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I guess from my perspective, any permissible open racism in the manner in which we're seeing now is just encouraging other people to think that that's okay and it's not creating a dialogue it's just encouraging people and you know if if people feel shameful enough about it that they will only discuss it at home uh, then maybe it won't pass on to the next generation but now when there appears to be no shame in being openly racist uh, i think it uh, it facilitates racism going forward but going back to your point about being governed by road robots, from what I see, and you know, I'm I'm getting this information from social media, which is totally designed to filter information to support my biases. When people are openly racist, when people call out other people on the bus because they're wearing traditional clothing or because their skin is a certain color or people get on their boat and wave their dicks around at a First Nations family who's just trying to do a traditional fishing activity. People take videos of that and people call that out on the internet and the racists get called out and the racists get publicly shamed for being racist assholes. And lose their jobs. And lose uh, their jobs and are appropriately punished for doing well. And I mean, the guys. Who- I don't know, though. I don't know. I don't know what goes on. And, you, you know, this is back to your bias of what you and I look at on the Internet. I, I don't, you know, we we've recently come across some um, very disturbing uh, things that, you know, people are misinformed about all sorts of stuff. And now we've seen it and connected to our own lives. And when we see that um, people accepting ideas that are were once reprehensible um, now suddenly persuading themselves that there's some complete falsehood is truth uh, you know it, it, it shakes your confidence in the ability of our society to properly educate um, and yeah okay so we're seeing these racists are coming out of the out of the uh, from their 
out from under the slime um, and exposing themselves, quite literally in the case you're referring to, mm-hmm. um, you know, that may be, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I think in those families where it exists, and I think there's a lot of families where it does exist, uh, I think it's um, been hidden in the back room and that's probably good because the kids go to school and they learn all the things against that and make up their own minds. But if the family is just openly like that and it's, they're so open that they can talk among other family members and other people and they get a sense, oh yeah, we're all supportive of Trump or whatever, um, then they just, it, it normalizes it. I'm concerned it's normalizing it. You think that it's calling it out. Let's wait and see uh, if our society still exists in 50 years. Well, you probably won't be here, and I maybe, maybe if I'm unlucky, we'll still be here then. But If I'm still around in 50 years, I won't have a clue what's going on anyway. <laughs> um, okay. Unless well, this, they can preserve my this, brain or something. This took a really dark and off-topic turn, but I want to come back just to, to bring it back to driving law, um, to, your, to your point about um, cameras and enforcement with cameras. I mean, I think that's a sort of a way of the future that we're not going to be able to get away from. We have advances in technology and we have, and we see this with the dragger too, people clamoring for technology, even when it's not good for law enforcement or for getting the job done properly or for respecting people's rights, even when there are so many flaws with that technology, governments and police forces want it because it saves money, it saves time. So I don't think there's anything I, I feel, we can do. I feel that we've there's lessons of history that haven't been learned and that the next generation is not incorporating that, maybe because we don't have the same classical studies we used to among the elite or intelligentsia or what have you. But I, I just don't feel that, you know, I, I know it's coming. I, I get it. I can't change it. I can't stop it. Uh, I'm just not happy about it. We're, we're they, getting a dragger. We're but, getting but red light cameras. But it's one of the reasons that I think the dragger discussion in the media was so overwhelming for you and me earlier in the week. It was, you know, you you think I think gave like fifteen or twenty uh, interviews a to lot. various media media outlets, and I gave a few. Um, and it's because people are, I think, there's enough hangers on like me or people who have that attitude that look at it and say, "Look, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't." think that faulty technology should be used to collect evidence that's going to stigmatize us and punish us. Well, we'll see what the courts have to say about that. And um, I, I feel that any further discussion will leave you sad and depressed. <laughs> you're, you're very doom and gloom, Paul. You're looking um, at my face as I am, yeah. I mean, if you, if, if you listeners could see Paul's face, you'd be wondering, like, Sad, if, if you sad could clown. give him the number for the uh, the you know need to talk hotline, um, yeah, that's what driving law is. It's your cathartic release, and I'll be I'll be happy later on. I'll, <laughs> I'll get home. I'll have a drink. I'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, drink your pain away. Um, there you go. Okay. So thank you for tuning in to this uh, very depressing and dark episode of Driving Law. We promise that not every episode is going to be this bleak. And, uh, it was philosophical. It wasn't bleak. People <laughs> Philosophy are com- is bleak. People are complaining that there's, you know, this, the discussion, discussion these days doesn't seem to address, uh, you know, some of these things. And that it's not a very intellectual discussion anymore. This was a little, I think, a little bit more of an intellectual discussion. 
maybe not. Maybe. Anyway, well, we'll see. We'll, I, I still we'll await that. the I feedback it. from this week. And uh, you can tune in uh, next week. We release a new episode every Friday uh, dealing with any current issues related to driving and the law. And if you need to get in touch with Paul or myself to ask any questions about the Drager Drug Test 5000 or red light cameras or motorcycle deaths or anything else related to driving, you can call us at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. Listen next week.